Once upon a time, there were three sisters who could not get along. And their mother made them go sit out in the garden and basically sit there until they could figure it out and stop fighting. But as they sat and sat and sat in that garden, the sisters just could not get along. Their mother kept coming out to check on them, and each time she did, they were no closer to a resolution. As time went on, their, their bodies, in essence, turned into seeds and were ultimately into the soil. And then when you know time went on, what grew was the squash, beans, and corn. And in order for that to happen, they needed each other. That was the story of the three sisters, as told by Talia Landry. Talia is a grant manager at the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe Education Department, as well as the president of the Tribe's Community Development Corporation. She was kind enough to sit down and talk with me about the Tribe's upcoming Three Sisters Holiday Craft Market. Talia told me that she and others working on this event wanted it to be open to everyone, not just tribal members, as a way to help break down barriers between natives and non-natives. There's a lot of thought into using Three Sisters as far as for our market because we didn't want it just to be, you know, a Native event. We didn't want it just to be Native vendors. We wanted it to be open to the community. Why we chose it in a community sense is, you know, all the different parts of the community having to come together to make this bountiful harvest. It's not even just about the vegetables. It's about the story behind it and how they had to come together. So because they basically sacrificed themselves and their differences to be turned into seeds, their community was able to feed and to live. When people with differences sacrifice their psychological comfort to come together and try to understand one another, the story goes, the whole community benefits. But how exactly does that work? Who should be making these sacrifices? And once we come together, how do we go about understanding one another? On this week's episode of the Upper Cape Catch, we explore these questions and more, first with Talia, and then later on in the episode with Born Enterprise editor Callie Remillard. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Upper Cape Catch by the Enterprise, where we bring you audio stories on the latest news from Falmouth, Mashpee, Bourne, and Sandwich. I'm Gilda Geist, and this week on the show, we're celebrating National Native American Heritage Month. Well, kind of. Our original plan for this episode was to center local Native American culture, practices, and issues in honor of this month. We're still going to do that, but we're going to start by talking about what National Native American Heritage Month means to Native people. At least, here on Cape Cod, home of the Wampanoag. Here's Talia. I mean, every month is Heritage Month for us. Talia has mixed feelings about National Native American Heritage Month. On the one hand, she's glad that for the month of November, non-Natives seem interested in learning about Native culture and history. But on the other hand, Cape Codders living on stolen Wampanoag land and living in community with Wampanoag people probably should be thinking about Native culture and history in other months of the year too, Talia says. Obviously, we love it as far as people highlighting it, because that means people are actually remembering that we're still here and not thinking about us in the past and things like that. So we do appreciate being able to be dedicated a whole month. But one thing we do like to push in our education is to really think about us all year round. Another strangely contradictory element of National Native American Heritage Month is its timing, Talia says. But before we hear from Talia on this, let's take a quick look at the history of National Native American Heritage Month. In 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed a joint resolution into law declaring November as National Native American Heritage Month. The resolution lists a number of reasons the U.S. should spend a month honoring Native Americans. 
One is that they, quote, have made an essential and unique contribution to our nation, not the least of which is the contribution of most of the land which now comprises these United States, end quote. Contribution's a bit of a strange word to use here, since native land was quite famously taken by force, not willingly contributed. But anyway, the resolution also talks about why November was chosen over other months. Quote, the month of November concludes the traditional harvest season of Native American Indians and was generally a time of celebration and giving thanks, the resolution argues. Beyond the fact that not all Native American tribes share the same culture and traditions around harvest season, Talia points out that the end of harvest season is not really the most culturally significant time of year for the Wampanoag. Within our new year, which is the springtime, there's so much more to teach. The sciences and arts and things like that, harvest and stuff like Right now is kind of the dull down time, like when things are dying. This is like more when we're like, you know, we're, we are coming together, but we're coming together like with our abundance and trying to put everything together. And so we can be comfortable for like the death of the land. Given all this, Talia says of National Native American Heritage Month. I mean, it's, it's a little contradictory, you know, but I mean, we'll, we'll take what we can get. The idea that November is a culturally significant time for Native Americans comes from what Talia calls the myth of Thanksgiving. The real story of Thanksgiving, Talia says, starts with the English settlers having a successful harvest. Thrilled with their bounty, the settlers began firing off celebratory cannons. The nearby Wampanoag tribe heard the cannons and gathered a group of 93 tribal members to head over to where the settlers were to see what was going on. When they arrived and learned about the settlers' harvest success, they went out to get turkeys to add to the bounty. The Wampanoag set up temporary camp right by the settlers' village, and the two communities feasted together for days. Though the story shares some similarities with the Thanksgiving story most Americans are familiar with, the difference that stood out when Talia told me the story is that the settlers never invited the Wampanoag to share their bounty. The Wampanoag initiated that interaction. Despite all the stereotypes and misinformation that lie at the heart of modern-day American Thanksgiving, Talia explained that there are plenty of Native people she encounters who are not against celebrating Thanksgiving. This is because since way before European settlers ever set foot in North America, coming together as a community to give thanks for food has been a Wampanoag tradition. We would normally come together and be thankful for certain things. Like we would have, we have more than one Thanksgiving a year because there's different times of different harvest. Like we have a strawberry Thanksgiving, um, when the herring come, there, there's another Thanksgiving, like the corn, the harvest of the corn. So we would, you know, it was a cultural practice of ours is to come together with a bountiful harvest and be thankful. We're not taking away, you know, that Thanksgiving day, but we're trying to get you ahead of time so you're thinking about that when you are sitting around that table and being thankful. Um, because you should be thankful for the for all the tribes that are here in America, you know, because it, America was very much formed on their back. Mm-hmm. And that's just one thing that, that you should think about maybe when you are sitting around that table, because all those foods, they came from this tribe. This brings us back to the Three Sisters Holiday Market, where Thanksgiving education will be an important part of the day's event. We will have someone having like a lecture or talk on the myth of Thanksgiving. So that will be a big highlight of it, especially around the time of Thanksgiving and kind of correcting that wrong of what is portrayed as like the American Thanksgiving. So really being able to have control of that and dictate that and make sure that the right information is getting out there. But there's another major piece to the market that has less to do with Thanksgiving and more to do with the tale of the three sisters you heard at the beginning of this episode. It's also trying to like bring the community into, you know, the reservation space because it is it's a community area. Like we want people to be welcome here, you know, and also showcase what goes on here because a lot of people don't know. Um, Because, I mean, I think it's um, one of those tendencies, especially for non-natives to feel like not scared, but not knowing 
especially about tribal like community or tribal happenings and stuff like that and like not not sure if they're allowed to do certain things and I mean and that's very respectful in a sense but you know we are a community we live in the community we're not sheltered at all we weren't the ones that put up fences or boundaries so that's very un- that's not part of our culture so just trying to break down that like un- uncomfortableness of non-natives to actually be comfortable coming here and learning about us and realizing you know we are all in the community together that's really our intent is to bring people here have people be able to make some money for the holidays and have people to have things for the holidays that are unique and special and especially that are connected to this land and where they are and really just get people in the doors and educate them. I asked Talia if she felt frustrated by how often the onus was on native people to educate non-natives on how to be respectful toward their culture. After all, her tribe has been fighting stereotypes and misinformation about native people for centuries. She said that though it is frustrating at times, her community doesn't really have a choice. We have to do the work or we'll, we'll go extinct. We won't exist anymore. And that's kind of like my purpose and a lot of people within the education department, like it seems like a lot of the goals and purpose within our lives is just to make sure that we keep existing. Within a tribal community too, we do realize that you can't do everything. So there's some people that can handle this work and can do it and then there's other people that will get angrier that can't, but then they're, what they're good at is something completely different, but is completely needed. There's some people that are good at some things and other people that are good at other things and no one's more important than the other. And that's literally the essence of a tribe. So if you, like Talia, the kind of person who seemingly has the endless patience and optimism that is often needed to help non-natives unlearn harmful attitudes and behaviors, you might work in the tribe's education department. And if you don't have the energy for that hugely daunting and draining task, Maybe you'll be a farmer, or a doctor, or a teacher. But, to Talia's point, someone's got to do it. Because if we didn't do it, then our kids are suffering, and we're suffering, you know, because then we're dealing with more ignorant people on a day-to-day. It makes it better for for our kids to be able to survive and exist if we can keep on educating people. Because in order for our kids to succeed and be comfortable, they need to be understood. And that's one of the main reasons the market will be open to natives and non-natives alike. Here's Talia with what you can expect from the market. Entrepreneurs or crafters will be selling their their goods. We have a lot of jewelry makers, a lot of personal care products, candles. I think we also have someone even making ornaments. Also, we will have some native foods there. So native food vendors, Womp Wheels will be there. They'll be like serving um, chowder and hash and stuff like that. So it's very much like a craft market, holiday craft market, but it also like incorporate like small businesses too. Cause like I said, we're trying to promote the community. And if shopping's not your thing, Talia says there will be other activities at the market for people to do. We'll probably be having some storytelling, too, as far as, you know, when kids come through. We'll actually also have um, performances so the community can be educated on our dance styles and our culture so that they'll get to know what we do and how we celebrate ourselves and be educated on that. So when powwow does come around, they'll maybe feel more welcome to come and then they'll know what they're looking at. Towards the end, like when we're wrapping up in the afternoon, it'll be very social-like. So how we do socials is we, you know, have food, we sing, we dance, we come together. So it'll be a lot of social songs. We have one of our um, tribal elders who will be leading a lot of our social songs. People are more than welcome to join in with us and it's kind of the whole purpose of it is for them to learn and to sing and dance and laugh with us. One last time, here's Talia with some key information about the Three Sisters Market. Okay, so the market's going to be held on November 20th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Community and Government Center at the Powwow Fields, though, so outside. Um, it's at 43 Great Neck Road South. 
The market is free and open to everyone, and the rain location will be inside the community and government center. Details will be in the description of this episode. Stay tuned. And now, on to our next segment of the podcast, where we talk to Bourne Enterprise editor Callie Remillard about what's going on with Bourne's Town Seal. So the Bourne Town Seal is basically, you know, a circular seal, and in the middle of it, we've got two Native people um, sitting in front of a triangular teepee. To their left is a deer, and to the right, you can see ships entering the harbor. If you want to see the seal for yourself, I put a link in the description to an editorial Callie wrote about this topic, which includes an image of the seal. For a little bit of background, the native community of this area of Cape Cod is the Wampanoag tribe. There are a lot of smaller sects under that big umbrella of Wampanoag people, um, specifically in Bourne, the Herring Pond tribe is really present. Okay, so now that you're caught up on all the basics, I'll tell you about the letter. Bourne resident Jack McDonald wrote a letter that he sent to a number of places, including to the Bourne Enterprise. In his letter, Jack argues that the town seal is outdated and stereotypical, namely because of the type of dwelling depicted on the flag. Teepees, as depicted in the seal, um, are actually not connected to native culture of this area. They were designed to be easily moved because the uh, indigenous people who traditionally used teepees as housing were almost nomadic out in the Great Plains. There was a lot of moving around, um, which is not what happened here with the Wampanoag tribes. Wampanoag people actually live in what is called a Witu, which looks a lot different than a teepee. A Witu is more of a domed structure, and it's a bit more permanent. It's, it would be very hard to move that. It's built out of all these, you know, bent bent bark, and it's all wrapped in twine and held together. And it very quickly became clear to me that, oh, a teepee and a Witu are very different. So what is shown on the town seal isn't necessarily accurate to this area's indigenous group. The Bourne town seal is a gross misrepresentation of the local Native American culture and needs to be updated, Jack wrote in his letter. Kelly decided to take a look into the history of the seal to find out where it originated. Someone named Charles Sidney Raleigh, he was an Englishman, uh, created the official seal of the town of Bourne in 1895, which is 127 years ago. To Jack, this is an error so glaring that even a child would be able to correct it. In his letter, he writes, The first thing anyone learns here, either at the Plymouth Patuxent Museum or any other Northeast Native event, is that the local natives lived in Witus. Elementary school children are taught about Witus. And even for those who didn't grow up on Cape Cod and didn't receive this education, it's not too hard to figure it out, Callie says. I did not grow up in Cape Cod, so I don't have inherent knowledge of the indigenous people of this land. But even after 10 minutes online looking it up, even I was able to discern a teepee and a Witu are very different, both in structure and in cultural importance. And to mix those two up, whether or not it's, you know, malintent, can have ill effects on the way we honor these tribes and these people and their cultures. Kelly also told me that the town of Bourne has been talking about wanting to restore the town's original flag with a seal and everything. It was actually brought up in a timely manner by Mr. McDonald that, hey, if you're going to restore this flag, you might want to get, you know, kill two birds with one stone and also correct it so that it, you know, properly shows respect for the indigenous community of this area. So I think this is a really pertinent time for Bourne to take up this issue 
and work towards resolving it before they restore that flag that bears the seal. Kelly explained how the born town seal's historically inaccurate depiction of Wampanoag culture might negatively affect Native people living in the town. It's easy to overlook this, but overlooking it further adds to the problem. I can imagine, I actually can't imagine what it feels like to be, you know, an indigenous member of one of these tribes and to look at the seal of my town and see that it sort of has this cartoonish stereotype right on it. I can't imagine that feels good. Recently, the town of Mashpee was in a similar situation until they officially changed their town seal this past May. The original seal featured a Native American man standing with an American flag wrapped around him. The new seal, Callie says, features a river, a beautiful sunrise, an eagle flying close to the sun, and it actually has um, a Wampanoag greeting, which says, Welcome to Mashpee, which is written in the traditional Wampanoag language. I really like what Mashpee did with their seal because it almost transitioned the attention from colonialism and conquering to more of a focus on these are the native people, the native beauty of the land. And that is what really is in the focus of Mashpee's current town seal. None of those things were present in the former one. And I think that if Bourne were to look at, you know, the way Mashpee did it, I think they could really make something special with their seal that pays homage to the indigenous people of the land where Bourne now stands. The question of what to do with Bornstown seal will go before the Historical Commission on Tuesday. Callie also has made plans with chair of the Herring Pond Wampanoag tribe, Melissa Ferretti, to talk more about the tribe's stance on the seal. If you're interested in learning more as the story unfolds, check out next week's issue of The Born Enterprise. This episode was voiced, written, and produced by me, Gilda Geist. Special thanks to Talia Landry and Callie Remillard. You can find a link to Kelly's editorial on the Borntown seal, as well as details about the Three Sisters holiday market, in the description of this episode. The Upper Cape Catch by the Enterprise comes out every Friday, just like our newspaper. Pick up your copy at our office in Falmouth, or at your favorite local business, or check us out online at capenews.net. We also have an app that is free to download on the App Store and Google Play. Thanks for listening. <laughs>